So these are all fantastic reasons. You may even discover other things that are interesting to you throughout the day. So to give a brief overview of what we intend to to talk about and explore today, in the morning, this morning session, we're going to get more familiar with the idea of our own death through reflections, through an interactive experiential exercise, and through conversations that we have. And then in the afternoon, we're going to look at some of the practicalities around death. So things like advanced directives and the forms that you need to fill out and what you need to know and talk about in order to prepare for the inevitable for yourself or for other people. Some of us may be here with loved ones who are, some have even said that, with loved ones who are terminally ill or very old. We can think a little bit also about the conditions that we might like to arrange around our death as we have some options, some not not any control about whether it happens, but we have a few options around how we can set intentions around that. And we will have time for questions throughout the day that come up. Um, maybe not as much as you'd like, if there are lots and lots, but we'll see. And uh, the, the idea is that this is interactive and exploratory. Uh, one little disclaimer is that Val and I are not medical or legal or one professionals. Big disclaimer. <laughs> okay, big disclaimer. That Val and I are not medical or legal professionals, so we're gonna we're fellow participants on the path toward the end of life, and um, we will share from our own experience and from the research that we've done. But anything that we say, you might want to check out with a lawyer or with somebody else before being absolutely sure. We have created this program together and uh, we'll be leading different portions of it, each of us, but we're also going to be kind of playing off each other and I very much hope that Val will fill in the things that I forget to say and vice versa. So that's, that's how it will flow throughout the day. And then I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the space that we've created here in that, um, you know, we've put on our name tags and we've shared a little bit about who we are so we feel like we're together as people. We hope very much that we are creating a safe space here together and uh, whether or not you realize it, death can be a tender topic to explore and we intend to look at it quite directly and there may be some feelings that come up or things that people need to work with uh, throughout the morning particularly where we're looking at our own death. And so we want just to be very sensitive to this being a safe place for that to happen, for everyone to have whatever process they need to have uh, during this time. And so there's just a couple of guidelines to share around that. And the first is um, please don't share anything that you hear in this room today outside with other people. Please treat it as a, a safe and confidential space for people. And then in addition, uh, this is an opportunity to practice uh, careful listening of what people are saying and also wise speech in what we share and how we share and how we bring our energy into the room. So let me continue then with a Buddhist perspective on death and dying is to be held in the 
you know, we were intending to hold this in the realm of our Buddhist practice, which is something that we all share, coming to this room, meditation practice at least. And I find it very inspiring that uh, the Buddha talked very directly about death and considered it to be something important for us to look at. It's not at all um, a problem or anything like that. So we all... We're all aware intellectually that we're going to die. If you go and walk out on the street and say to somebody, are you going to die? They'll say, well, yeah. But we don't necessarily have that understanding in both sides of our brains, as I believe someone said. And, and also, you know, we don't tend to maybe act always as if we're aware that, um, that death could happen at any time. It tends to be a little bit abstract. And we also may think about, well, other people do that, but you know, maybe not maybe not me. So we hope that today will help you know, bring the idea of our own death into a more experiential space. Uh, one thing to share also and to just bring into the room, I know not everyone is from this community, but there was a dearly beloved member of the Insight Santa Cruz community who died earlier this week. And, you know, that was not a surprise. Um, people knew that that would happen. Uh, because she had been ill for a while. But, you know, there it is. It's right there among us. And then I'll also share that I was talking with a friend yesterday, and she's in a group with another person who uh, was 28 years old and died very unexpectedly 10 days ago from a brain aneurysm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't know. 28 years old, otherwise quite healthy. So this is something that... um, Feels surprising often, but when we look at when we look at it overall, it's not a surprise at all in any given case. So how can we get ourselves familiar familiar with this? Buddhist teachings are often intimately connected with with death in the form of arising and passing. The Buddha himself was inspired uh, to to go on his quest because of a an incident where he went out into the city and he had led a very sheltered life in the palace and then one day wanted to find out more about life and he encountered various things on his journey out he encountered uh, a very elderly person he encountered a person who was ill and he encountered a corpse and these were things he actually hadn't seen before because he'd led such a sheltered existence his father tried to keep him only around young, healthy, happy people with all kinds of sense pleasures, so the story goes. And when he saw these things, that they were very surprising to him. And he asked his charioteer, well, is this going to happen to me too? And the charioteer said, yeah. <laughs> so that was surprising to him. And he realized, oh, there's a lot more here. And there's a lot. It touched him in a way that brought him in contact with the suffering of these conditions that happen to all humans. And he wanted to know if there was a way out of that. So death was very much part of the Buddha's own instigation to understand about this life, understand suffering and find the end to it. And he did through his awakening. So it's not surprising that when he began to teach after that, he encouraged very much reflection on death. We are encouraged to frequently recollect death. In fact, somebody mentioned that this is one of the five remembrances uh, that we are to bring to mind frequently. Uh, I have not gone beyond aging. I have not gone beyond illness. I have not gone beyond death. 
the others are about um, I will change and the things that I are dear to me will uh, be separated from me and I'm the owner of my actions. So those are the five. But the, you know, the first three of aging, illness, and death, those were what motivated him. And so he encouraged us also to be motivated by these important factors of human life. It's a powerful doorway into insight, really looking at these truths. And also into maybe more surprising things like concentration and also compassion. So many, many fruits. And into joy. And into joy. As well, one of the factors of enlightenment. Those all come from being willing to see the, the truth. Joy of being able to, to work with this, with this part of your life, to look at it and not be afraid of it any longer can bring a great deal of relief to us, I think. Very much so. This is from the suttas, actually. Mindfulness of death when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as its consummation. And that's a reference to (coughs) Nibbana, Nirvana, the highest happiness, is the culmination of examining death. So here's the good news, which Val has alluded to, is that death is not a mistake, and it's not a problem, even. It does bring normal feelings of grief, of loss, of sadness for many of us, um, but those, those are not a problem in and of themselves. We can hold that also in our mindfulness. We're supported in all of this by our practice of mindfulness. So that's another encouragement for today is to uh, stay within the realm of practice. As we sit on the cushion, we often get the instruction, sit with what's happening in the body and mind, just watch as things arise and pass, feel the emotions, and in the same way, uh, we're not necessarily going to be sitting with our eyes closed, but in the same way, those same things will happen today. And we can use our mindfulness practice as a great support. Also, the development of equanimity, of compassion, these other factors that we're aware of. Another aspect of death that's important is to realize that it is a great unifier of people. So it's uh, in the realm of what's called common humanity. And everyone uh, in this room, as well as that we know, as well as in the world, will die at some time. And that that includes people that we like, people that we don't like, and people that we don't know. It's something that is actually, no matter how different you think the person sitting across from you is, no matter how you can't understand them and think they're completely coming from a different place, you at least share that both of us have aging, illness, and death between us. We're both on some kind of a passage toward that inevitable change. So it's a connector, in a way. You're interested in connection between people This is a very important topic to understand and explore and to bear in mind. I know that for myself, I have used um, awareness of death to help relationships. You know, there have been people that I find challenging or that stress me out in some way. And in interactions with them, I have sometimes gone away with a feeling of, oh, that was so annoying or a feeling having a feeling and interacting with them like I want to 
get one up on them or tell them tell them how I feel about you know this kind of thing and so uh, these kind of egoistic you know movements of competition or such and sometimes it's helped me in those relationships to remember you know what this could be the last time I interact with this person mm-hmm. and if it's a poor interaction in some way and you know then they die for example I have to live <laughs> with that feeling do I want that what feeling do I want to live with after this interaction so you know or you know less in a less self-centered way if I'm the one who dies they have to live with this do I want that for them no not really you know there's um, so this can be very helpful I think it's also um, excuse me I think it's also helpful just in terms of with the people you do love um, to remember to hold that sometimes we we're talking about Kim was talking a little bit about difficult people but even people that we love or people that we're interacting with regularly to realize, you know, that we don't we don't know when we'll see them again, and it makes all of our interactions more precious. And uh, I know that's a practice I learned from a friend that I've taken on in my relationship with my husband. Of whenever we say goodbye, we say goodbye. I mean, just leaving the house, we make sure we say goodbye to each other, and uh, it, it adds a real sweetness to our life that I hadn't really thought about before. That uh-huh. you know, if I don't see him again. That would be very sad to have not really paid attention to the last time I said goodbye. So it's, it's in both of these realms, I think. Beautiful. <clears throat> so overall, this is a great opportunity today to practice everything you know about practice. It doesn't matter how much experience you're coming with. Uh, we can bring to bear all of our understanding, all of our mindfulness, <coughs> all of our compassion and awareness to this important and interesting, I hope for you, topic. So we have a few minutes before we were intending to take a short break. We'll do an exercise um, a little while from now. We're going to have a break before that. But there's there's time now for a few of us to maybe share a little bit more about what you've heard so far or anything else. Uh, You know, we've got time for five to ten minutes of comments if people would like to, to add anything. Yeah. I'm just filled with joy and I'm so grateful to you for this morning and for all the people who have meditated here. It is so beautiful, so happy, so joyful to be here. And I thank you and I thank everyone who has come because everyone has set aside other things in their life to be here. I'm very grateful. Thank you. I could share something about um, another reason why I'm here is that my mother was a very good mother and uh, raised five children and she's been suffering with dementia and Alzheimer's for a long time. You know, it's been a long end to her life, and I struggle with it being so unfair for a woman who deserved better. And um, sometimes I arrive at the place where it has brought my dad and us kids all closer together by 
uh, working at making her as comfortable as we can, um, do, all doing our little whatever we can do at this time. And um, I used to joke with her when she was a little more lucid about how her forgetfulness was just her ability to live in the moment more than some people could, you know. But um, it's part of what brings me here, too, is that sadness and then recognizing that it does have a quality of goodness to it. I think one of the things that that I've experienced um, when my father passed away, um, and I wasn't around him at the time of his passing, but I got a phone call from sister um, who just she's very emotional and was just it was like at midnight and it's like he's gone, he's gone, I mean it was a weird way to wake up and and it took, you know, I want something else in my life when I go than somebody who is out of control themselves it sounds a little funny but I I would like to to uh, I would like it to be a peaceful passing, and I would like the people around me to accept that and learn how to to be. Um, because I think that that will help me to go. It, I think it would be hard to go and know that you're hurting somebody else and that they can't handle it. So I don't know. I think I think a lot of that is a lot of what we will be addressing this afternoon. Good. Yeah. <clears throat> when you mentioned Joy, uh, I remember from yesterday, wasn't part, um, talking to my sister. Um, her dear husband died in 2004, and they were the type of couple who, when they walked out of the house together, held their hands. And um, my sister was telling me that as he was in the room, in, in the living room, in the hospice bed, my sister got up and, you know, been going through this really horrible. He had a brain tumor, so it went fast, and she was shocked. And um, she went outside in the morning and just stood in her driveway. And she couldn't explain why, but she felt this sense of bliss mm-hmm. in the midst of her dying husband, her husband dying. And she felt, okay, I'll be all right. And she went back inside and Two hours later, her husband died. But before he died, she said, I'll be all right. It's such a wonderful flip of despair or, you know, suffering into gladness in a way. Um, All things can be that way. Yeah. I think that points out that we shouldn't have any assumptions about what kind of feelings we're going to have around this topic. And also, uh, maybe I'll just say explicitly that any feeling you have is okay today. You may feel great bliss today. I don't know. And we can sometimes be caught in the idea of, oh, death is supposed to be this really dark and depressing and sad. And it it may not be always changes. So I feel very peaceful as I listen to you talk. I appreciate that. 
appreciate that. And and and, and the view that the, the death and illness is natural and happens to all of us. But I'm dealing with illness and I'm finding, but that's not what I hear out in the world. I mean, they want to, uh, you know, it's kind of like, no, you should deny it or it shouldn't be happening or whatever. And it's kind of, I find it really, re- a re- I mean, my spiritual past has been very nourishing for me, but I'm finding at this point they're not quite working too well. I'm finding a real relief to hear you talking about it and say, well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it, really, when you look at it? But that's not what I'm encountering in the world. I'm encountering people wanting, not, not wanting there to be illness, not wanting there to be death, but there is, I mean, you know, and kind of really denying it and even really wanting to deal with it or talk about it or allow it in the space. Really, a little strange, I think. And it's very restful to table here. Yeah, you're referring to something very important, which is kind of the societal denial or ignorance, really, meaning ignoring around death. Um, And this is something that we'll all encounter out there. Now, our practice gives us tools to look at death. We have mindfulness, we have the support of Sangha. And we have teachings that point us toward this, you know, where it's explicitly said this is a fruitful thing to look at. And if a person is not in a situation where they have those kinds of supports, denial may actually be the best way to deal with it um, for some people. So maybe that's a little bit of a caution also, if not to go waving to people and say, hey, I just learned about this whole death thing. Let's, you know, you have to be a little sensitive about how we, how we come to people who don't have the supports of this kind of practice. And, um, and yes, so this is actually a very affirmative reason of why we do things like this, is to bring it out in the open, shine the light. I'm so glad this is such a light, nice space with sunlight coming in. Let's put the light on this topic. I saw another one. Um, I just have to say that that's in me, too, the, just wanting to deny it. Oh, absolutely. That's so, another Yeah. Right here, too. Yeah, right here. Yeah. <laughs> so... So I also think that um, death is a chance to see life as very precious, mm-hmm. but somehow because you don't know when you die, you don't know how much time you have. So let's say I, I, I knew I'm going to die next year, then I think I would just, for example, travel and meet really important people and really do what's really precious and important to me but I might live I don't know another 30 years yeah. um, and then if I travel now and spend all my money what's going to happen <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean welcome so, to the uncertainty <laughs> <laughs> don't forget the Buddha's teaching of the middle way yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know a little travel is not going to break your way <laughs> so one way of looking at it is how can I balance my life right today, this, you know, and to each day that I go through, how can I have some balance in there so I feel like I, if something's happening to me tomorrow, I feel like I am living my life right now and I'm living and, ways but that are that's significant. What I feel I can't do at the moment I, because, um, yeah, I think there's, there are so many important things mm. I, I, I would like to do. Um, so I, I guess it's yeah setting priorities and um, yeah trusting in life 
Okay, last one. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to name in relationship to what you were saying about the society at large. Part of it's denial, but sometimes there's a sense of, like, if I'm dying, if I'm ill, I fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the spaciousness and the relief that we are of the nature to have these things happen takes it out of that realm of I failed or somebody else is failing me. Yeah. Wanted to kind of name the liberation from the sense of failure. Thank you. So we'll go ahead and take about a 10 minute break. So the next thing we're going to do is an experiential exercise, which I've never heard anything called called anything except the post-it exercise. <laughs> so it has a nice non-threatening name. And the purpose of the exercise is to explore and prepare for uh, sickness, old age, and death, which will come to us. And it may help to teach a little bit about letting go and about what's really important to us. So you'll see as you go along that um, a little bit of this process is needed. We may learn a little bit about our own attachments, for example, and see things in ourselves that we weren't aware of before. And then later, if you're thinking more intentionally for the future, it may be that some of what you learn in this exercise can be applied later to help make choices about what's important. So the basic instruction is to uh, be internally aware of your thoughts and feelings around dying as we do this exercise. Anything that you feel is okay, anything that comes up is fine. It's a quiet exercise mainly for your own reflection as you go through it. We'll see um, there's not a lot of talking but there will during the exercise, but then we're going to have a chance to share and debrief afterwards. So there will be plenty of time for that. So there are two things you can notice, actually. I said notice how you feel, but you can also notice how you respond to those feelings. Like if you have a feeling of fear, do you then get afraid of that or resist that in some way? Or if you have a feeling of excitement, do you then think that that's a bad thing? You shouldn't be excited about something serious like this. So that's all interesting. So for this, we're going to need to divide into two different groups. I think we've got about 20 people, so kind of 10 each. I think we'll let people self-select. Does that sound okay? So we'll have 10 here with me and 10 in that circle of chairs in the back. Val, anything else to say? Yeah, just just as we said, it'll be mostly introspective. It's not really interacting with others in the group or even, well, it's mostly an introspective exercise. Okay. So this is an opportunity. This is. I, I'm. Thank you, first of all, for participating in such an intense exercise. It can be at least. So this is an opportunity to share a little bit, and maybe we'll start with something like, "What were some of your thoughts and feelings during the exercise?" If you're interested in sharing, Joetta. I was actually pretty amazed. Uh, it, it was easier for me the first round to give up what I wanted to. But when you came (laughs) on the second round and, you know, the the resistance and aversion of even you approaching, you know, was pretty intense. And then the reaction of what you said was 
very I noticed the first time Val came around to take one. First time Val came around to take one, I couldn't watch. And then I, yeah. and then, yeah, I said I, I noticed that, and then I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna just you know be there as it goes. You know, so it was an interesting. Both of those were interesting. That's time cool. Yeah, just maybe raise your hand a little. Um, it's still with me, this huge feeling of loss, mm. because it brings it home that all of these, I can lose all of these things, either by my death or, or my dying or my illness or deaths of the people I loved before I die. And it's just devastating. It's working, guys. <laughs> and, and it just is. And it was when Val took things away. The second time, the, the first time he took things away was the most. Oh, uh, that's when I began feeling tears. And then it just. The people were the hardest thing. Oh, that's mm-hmm. an interesting thing to share. What was the hardest? What were you holding on to the most? <clears throat> Uh, the people. Yeah. Yeah. The initial one could feel like the bracing and guarding in my body, just uh, kind of stealing. Have had a lot of loss and just, and then the, the coping. Like, okay, I can cope with that. I can cope with that. I can cope with that. And then the random one, all the activities were taken. And. And it was just like, oh, this is what a vegetative state would be like. And, and my daughter was left, and I just felt such sadness for her to be left with me in that place. There's a hand in the back there, yeah. I started feeling very destabilized by just the idea of these things. Be taken away by myself or or, or kind of. But I, I second the, the comment about it was easy to give but give up the lower priority things or the things, activities, and roles became lower priority to the people. I would willingly exchange those. I lucked out. <laughs> you know, my losses weren't that bad. I got my grandkids, my wife, food, my mountain and movies. <laughs> so how do you feel about being somewhat spared? spared and yeah, really other people are devastated around you. <laughs> but it was, it was dramatic when the Grim Reaper came up. <laughs> Kim was asking how you felt um, when you were feeling spared, but you noticed other people maybe were, did you notice other, yeah, feeling so, other I people? Yeah, I was thinking, what a downer. After the first time, um, uh, when uh, Kim went through and took things away, I started, you know, and you said you were the final time you were going to take all or nothing. I wanted you to take everything. Yeah, you wanted that. 
But I didn't, did I? <laughs> yeah, I was left with my bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is an interesting relationship to attachment too. Mm-hmm. Well, this is my final sheet. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and and in sort of, I'm saying it in response. I found that it was it was in a way more painful and were sad or kind of unnerving to see them go sort of one by one. Mm-hmm. And when they all went, it was disturbing for a moment. And then it, it was, it was, it was like, you know, kind of, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was blissful or anything, but it, it, there was a way in which it was easier to sort of, okay, I'm just letting, letting go. So, um, but I, and I just I want to add that it, it was surprising. This is what other people said. The surprisingly real feelings came up, even though I reflect on this all the time, you know, about all things that I will lose this or whatever. But it was um, maybe just sitting there and imagining each one gone from my life. What would be left? And then when there was nothing left. Um, I, I do want to say there's two two thoughts. I thought, well, I'm kind of in a veg. I must be if I'm alive. Either I'm dead, or if I'm alive, I'm, I'm in a more like a vegetative state. Then I thought, no, maybe they've all been replaced. <laughs> there you go. By other people and other activities, and uh, that's interesting. And, you know, what would that be if those ones were gone? So anyway, I just want to say I appreciate all the you know. Possibilities and feelings that oh. got uh, arose. Tom, did you I, uh, oh, okay, and then Tom. I think I'm really into denial and attachment because you can take my people, but my people didn't go. They just didn't go, which I thought was really interesting. And then when value took everything from this lady, my response was talk about attachment. Thank God that was. <laughs> I'm not ready. <laughs> so I have some. <laughs> Tom? Um, peeling this off of the paper had a very kind of a sticky feel to it. <laughs> it kind of felt like an old bending ripped off. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, as certain things land. As certain things remained, uh, as those other things left, uh, other things became almost unimportant or yeah. disappeared. You know, I have to take, you know, because without this, I mean, what's that? Uh, yeah, so we see interrelationships yeah, between the things in our lives. Yeah. Then you're looking at the, the blank paper and then going, well, I don't know. I felt like it was hard to put myself in in a box, you know. Like I had a hard time kind of like seeing myself in like that way, and um, and then I didn't. I was kind of attached to some of those things at first, and kind of just like seeing my life like that just felt uncomfortable. But when more of them came off, it just felt like life got a little simpler. <laughs> I had a little less to live up to in a way. Just kind of. An interesting way to look at it, but um, 
just get a little easier, but also room to like ex- to to put more into what I do to have. The other thing that uh, was interesting to me is, is as very important things were taken away and I went through the grief of that, I also came back to appreciate what I still had. Hmm. That was really important to me. Okay. Um, I found myself holding my breath a lot. And um, I'm not sure what that was on the edge. And then um, as things disappeared, I looked at, you know, what I had left <laughs> the game board. And um was like, well, that, you know, okay, so but but this one, you know, if my health and energy or energy goes, you know, I'm dead. Um and so you know like that like that was the case. And um and then I was like, well and there's something about, about the way that you know, I mean, I'm still playing with that. I was very surprised by how realistic yeah. this exercise felt to me. Very simple little thing. And it, and it just suddenly became real <laughs> and life. Uh, that was very interesting. And so as things came off, I, my mind started picturing uh, Nelson Mandela, and then I started picturing people that were losing everything in a fire. Mm-hmm. And then when Kim came around, I felt like I really wanted to help. Take things off, hold the paper, you know. It was like, that was nice. That was interesting to me. That felt pretty good. And then the last time she came around, I thought, I know she's going to take everything. I know that. And she did. She took everything. And there was this, of course, there was this sadness. And then I started immediately just doing my practice. And that helped. That, that helped to ease the, the pain of losing everything. It didn't completely <laughs> make it go away, but it definitely helped. I had a, a, had a, a glimpse of something Barry and this young lady have said. Uh, for me, it was like, oh, now I don't have to worry about all these things. Mm-hmm. A sense of freedom and um, more ease. I, at the same time, I'm sitting here right now with a knot in my stomach. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have more work to do too. A couple of observations about my reaction. One was that I noticed that the anticipation was the uh, as fearful or frightening as. Not more so than the actuality, because once something was gone, I could start hoping, whereas the anticipation was was scary. And the other thing I noticed was as Val was coming towards um, these little post-its, I started 
pressing them down more for I noticed uh, several things which also also other people mentioned, like um, intense reactions um, on a bodily um, uh, level, also feelings and thoughts. And then there was a moment where I completely like detached. So my intellect said, "Oh, that's just a game," and um, and so I so somehow I feel felt like I shut down and then I also remembered an, an experience I had and I'm moving right now so um, um, when I was driving the car one day I suddenly thought oh maybe that's my last move mm-hmm. and then I can't take anything with me um, and that felt a little bit like an empty mm-hmm. uh, sheet of paper mm-hmm. and somehow it struck me um, I thought, isn't there a little thing I can take along? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe love, but or memories, but nothing like this. Okay. This brought so vividly to mind August 24, 2003, when my sister suddenly went from full life into coma. Uh-huh. And ever since then, we've all been so. <clears throat> intimately and daily aware that on the instant it can all go mm-hmm. and by the way she's fine well one thing that is listening it didn't occur to me at the time of doing this but under the things category I think because I normally don't think of these things as things, which they are, but if I did this again, I would put this under the list as my body, Mm -hmm. my mind, Mm -hmm. my memories, Mm -hmm. my emotions, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, actually the more important, because the the thing category was like, you know, I'd be disappointed, but so what? And then I thought, well, there's these other things. that actually are much more intimate <laughs> mm-hmm. and important and I will lose yeah. and just to speak to that I, I know I've talked to a, a nursing friend who's done this in a, as a nursing practice yeah. and they had to list things like brushing my teeth they had to get down to the, the nitty gritty of just daily care mm-hmm. yeah. and removing those things mm-hmm. so there's, there's that level of, yeah. of letting go too, which many of us have seen if you've had elderly parents. I live in a two-story condominium and giving up walking up the steps and down the steps is something that I think about as I get older. And that brings up a lot of emotion. Um, what Carla said, I was just thinking that myself. Is that you can only do this once, because next time around, I'm not putting important stuff on. All the trivial parts of my life are going to I mean, yeah, that's you know, so, working out for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've done this exercise more than once. Really? It was um, it was just as intense the next time. <laughs> I have to yeah. say, even did though you, I knew and all that, you know, same. Did you use the same uh, selection process? I don't. I probably oh the same selection process. By putting this stuff down. I mean, oh. Did you select the same? Yeah, same yeah. Way? I still chose things that were important at that moment. And, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I'm, I'm sorry. I, yeah, no, no. Um, I love that you took away one of my children because I have two and I love them equally. And it was like, oh. how do I do that? Yeah. How do I take one of them away? And you did it. Yeah. And it was like, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And it also showed us one of the key aspects of illness the difference between the things that we chose to give up yeah. and the things that were just taken away. Right. Yeah, what was their feelings about that difference? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I found that having to get rid of a person was really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yourself, choosing something from your choosing life. When you had to choose, so yeah. Like, I have to uh, yeah. excise this person? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was much happier with you doing the choice. Yeah. With the things that Actually, that's exactly what I was going to say. Okay. For me, the most difficult part was having to choose one of the people mm-hmm. to let go of. It was really traumatic. And maybe then I turned off a little, moved into denial, because the rest was, you know, um, I didn't really have strong emotion attached to it. So I wanted to speak a little bit now about ways that we can become more aware of death during our daily life and how can we bring this into our practice, into our way of being in the world. Some people find it very meaningful to have done this exercise and that's fine, we're done. And other people say, wow, this is something that I I want to touch into more often. So I, I just want to talk through a few possibilities that I've found meaningful in my own practice. Um, there is a name for death awareness practice in Buddhism. It's called Maranasati practice. And interestingly, Mara is Mara. You may have heard the character who often taunts the Buddha and you know is, is said to be the incarnation of temptation or of ignorance or of death sometimes. And then sati is, of course, mindfulness. So marana sati is to be aware of death. And one way that we can do this as a deliberate exercise in our lives is to look around at the things in our house, for example, and think about which of the things you have came from somebody who is now dead. Maybe more things than you realize. I have things that my grandparents gave me, things that friends gave me who have unfortunately passed away or pictures of people who are deceased. And just be aware, oh yes, the people that are connected to me eventually pass on. And then, of course, the advanced exercise is to imagine that everything you have is eventually going to go to somebody else. This is the things category. And, you know, these things are very useful to me now. Maybe they're training wheels or something else. Uh, And they're not really mine in the long run. We will go elsewhere at some point. Another 
interesting area that the Buddha talked about also was to connect ourselves with the, rem- the places of death, so cemeteries or mortuaries or crematoriums, for example. It may be that you pass these as you drive to work or you know drive around town. Do you know, for example, where the cemeteries are around the city? There are a couple of them. And you may notice as you drive by that you don't see them. <laughs> I drive driven by that every day for 10 years, but never really looked at that. And so, you know, have a look sometime. Or you may even want to stop and go in. And it's interesting to walk around mm-hmm. among the graves, even if you don't know the people, maybe especially if you don't know the people. And it's interesting to imagine them as people. They were people who had hopes and dreams and loves and fears and exciting, wonderful things that happened to them and tragic, terrible things that upset them and all of that. Probably their lives were just as rich, but they've moved on. And it's also interesting to look perhaps at the... I sometimes scan and just calculate in my mind the age of the person. Oh, this one was 70, this one was 83, this one was 35, you know, this one was 2. You know, there's all all possibilities. And imagine, you know, if you see someone who's 72, who, when they died, what about all the people you know who are older than 72? You know, they, that brings a special, maybe a special relevance. Or maybe you're older than some of those ages on there. I found these things to be meaningful. Meditating in um, graveyards is encouraged. Mostly just, you'll see what comes up for you when you do this. Uh, The Buddha actually was talking about something much more dramatic. He talked about meditating in what's called the Chango ground, which is a place where there aren't actually graves. They just put the bodies there. We don't have those in the West. So it's a different, very different experience to do this. But I have found it meaningful to sit in the graveyard and just be there with that. Although, truthfully, it's a little sterile in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Graveyards are for the living, (laughs) yeah? The death already happened by the time the people arrived Mm -hmm. there. But I, I encourage it as something interesting to do. As we get to things that are a little bit more embodied ways of exploring death, Um, If you know somebody who is in a nursing home, for example, or better yet, on hospice, perhaps, make a point of going to visit them. Even if you don't know them very well, they'll love it, you know, to have somebody come. And make it a practice to go and be in a place where kind of the point is that we're waiting for that to happen. And you see people in various states of um, getting closer to that. And also in various states of being aware of how close they are or denying and it can be really meaningful to just go and spend time, especially if somebody is in a stage where they're um, changing, you know, changing toward toward their death. We can see that change week by week or month by month. And that can be a powerful experience for us if we enter it in a reflective, meditative kind of way. You don't have to tell everybody that this is what you're doing, but it can be very meaningful to come in contact with people like that. If you're uh, inclined to begin to serve or help in this capacity, there are many opportunities to volunteer in hospitals, in hospices, in nursing homes. I found that meaningful. They're often looking for 
volunteers. You don't have to have nursing skills or chaplaincy type skills. There's all kinds of things that you can do uh, just with the skills of being a caring, helpful, friendly person, especially one with a mindfulness practice. And, you know, just going in and being with people, making lunch, uh, relieving the caregiver, spending a few hours with someone so the caregiver can go out. I found this to be really wonderful. And ask me about that. Um, if that is something that really interests you and you don't have, you know, dealing with that in your family so much, uh, if you go to the Santa Cruz Volunteer Center on the 17th at Capitola, they have some programs where they connect a volunteer with a nursing, someone in the nursing home who has no visitors. It's called, I think it's called IU Venture. There's several programs. And that would be an opportunity to be able to go in when you're connecting with somebody in the nursing home, uh, which would be a wonderful possibility. Yeah. And then, if you're feeling especially really wanting to engage, I recommend looking at pictures. Uh, this is also something that, you know, related to this, um, what the Buddha recommend in terms of seeing things. And you can look online and find all kinds of wonderful pictures of skeletons, for example, or corpses. Um, you can now view surgeries on, on video and just things where you'll get exposed to what the body really looks like under the surface where we mostly deal with it. And also states of decay. Now the difference in uh, doing all of these things between just doing it and externalizing or analyzing or keeping it at a distance and from really making it an insight exercise is maybe captured in one phrase which we could say, me too. So when we look, we think, I am not immune from this. My body too will be like that. It can even be casual, right? Roadkill is available. Um, my body too <laughs> would look like that if that were to happen to it. And really kind of bring that in. You can do this slowly, you know, but I, I recommend this as a possibility. Sometimes it helps just to hear someone say, this is really okay. If you're curious about this and you're thinking after today, boy, I'd sure like to see what a corpse looks like. You don't have to say, oh, that's a morbid thought. How weird. No one thinks like that. Not at all. You can go home and look this up on the internet and or get a book and satisfy that curiosity and explore that and see what comes up for you. It's helpful to be a little sensitive about this. If you have a partner, you don't leave it on the screen, leave the book open on the desk, you know, these kinds of things. Um, we want to be sensitive that not everyone is doing this exploration that we are. But it's very meaningful. I know somebody who has done lots and lots of death practice work and thought she had it all pretty under control. And then she saw, um, she was very surprised that she saw a skeleton that wasn't in the right shape. You know, it was like the bones scattered, which is one of the reflections the Buddha recommends. And she had this strong reaction to seeing something where the body wasn't in the right shape. And she realized she was kind of attached to the form of the body, looking like it does. And it was it was an interesting experience for her to see a scattered skeleton. So that, in particular, was can be very powerful. And then finally, just because I love mentioning this, um, I did at one point have the opportunity to participate in a human dissection. There is a program through which people who are not medical professionals can sign up, and you, know, you have to get approved by the teacher. But there's a, a man who 
offers these wonderful workshops, six-day workshops, where you actually participate in a human dissection yourself. They issue you a scalpel at the beginning, and and you're going to do it. So that's not for everyone. So I'm just mentioning it briefly. But, you know, it goes really far in terms of what the possibilities are for exploring this topic. And I encourage you to just do the part that works for you of everything that that I've mentioned. But not to not to be shy about it, and not to feel it's something wrong if you're curious and want to bring that into your practice. Yeah. Throughout memorial benches are one of my favorite places really? to read the things people put uh-huh. great care on memorial benches. Little quotes and stuff. And there's places where there's a lot of them. Parks and such. Them. Yeah. Great suggestion. Yeah, does anybody have other suggestions for and things related that found that, Just attending memorial services. It's interesting when, even if it's a person you know, maybe you know closely, sometimes a version arises to going to a memorial um, and noticing what, what how you're feeling about memorials. But memorial services can be um, another way of really um, bringing home that understanding of death and loss, change. One of the things I've done recently is to create the memorial service for my mom and one for me so that I know that the things that need to be said will be said and the poems that need to be read and the hymns that need to be sung will be taken care of. And this is an amazing day in Santa Cruz and I want to be sure that everyone in this room knows about it, how resonant with our morning tonight at 7 o'clock at um, the Civic the symphony and the symphonic chorus are doing Mozart's Requiem. Yeah. Um, So, on a rational level, I understand what you mean, that it's important to confront yourself with death and dying. Um, But, for example, when you talk about dissection and so on, um, or looking at pictures for me at the moment it feels really um, threatening um, so because somehow yeah, it's difficult to explain but, but so how, how, is the idea to learn to to be relaxed with looking at pictures or well First of all, thank you for sharing mm-hmm. your fear about yeah. that. And mm-hmm. definitely the point is not to force your way in. That's, yes. that's never mm-hmm. val- valuable in insight mm-hmm. practice. So it's to work with um, whatever layer of response you're having. So you know, the aversion or the threat can be interesting to look mm-hmm. at. There's no point, like, if you're a really advanced meditator, you should be able to look at a bloody corpse and have no response. You know, that's... That's not needed at all. It's to slowly familiarize ourselves to um, build some tolerance in being able to be with whatever is arising and just touch into this topic a little bit as it feels appropriate. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel like there's a goal or a hierarchy of who can mm-hmm. handle what. It's not. It's not the case like that. Yes, because I think there's, it's important that there's a balance between life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, and if your response is that, you know, 
life feels precious and life feels joyful mm-hmm. and beautiful, that's a beautiful response. That's and that's a wonderful I, way to approach. Because I think when when I um, deal with this too much, I, I think especially because I had several loss mm. recently, mm. I tend to get very depressed and frightened. How do you hold this in your practice right now? Mm-hmm. But you're here today, right? Yes. So maybe there's some sense that mindfulness mm-hmm. um, can hold some of these feelings and this there's no need to try to bring about anything. Just being here mm-hmm. is good. And we can talk more about that if you okay. want, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Okay, so thank you everyone for um, for this time. We're going to do one more sitting that will take us until lunchtime. And there will be a short reading at the end of the sitting, but it'll be uh, about 13 minutes since we're going to go break for lunch at 12.30. So please settle in again. gravestone there's a birth year and there's a death year and in between them there's a dash so it's sometimes interesting to ask what will I do with my dash or as Mary Oliver says what will you do with your wild and precious life And finally this from a Buddhist recollection on death. Because death may soon come, I will repay all debts, forgive all transgressions, and be at odds with none. Because death may soon come, I will squander no time brooding over past mistakes, but use each day as if it were my last. Because death may soon come and separation from those I love, I will develop compassion and equanimity rather than possessiveness and clinging. Because death may soon come, I will use each day fully, not spending it on fruitless pursuits and vain longings. May I be prepared when death finally comes. May I be fearless as life ebbs away. May my practice help in the freeing of the heart.
Welcome to those of you joining us this afternoon. Since we have some new people, we'd like to just introduce ourselves briefly. And um, again, my name is Valerie Nelson. People call me Val, and I've been a Buddhist practitioner, formal practitioner for about 15 years. I completed the <coughs> Buddhist chaplaincy program at the Saki Center in Redwood City last year, and I'm a volunteer one day with the Dominican Hospital, and I'm the uh, chaplain for Boom and Present Sangha. The co-presenter. My name is Kim Allen, and I've um, been around the communities in this area for a bit over a decade, means the extended Bay Area. And I also did the Sati Center program, and I volunteer at Valley Medical Center as in the spiritual care department there. And I've done hospice work also, and have taken uh, death awareness practice as a part of my Buddhist practice, a very important part. And so it's touching to me to be able to share this topic today. And would you just go around again and let's just say first names and maybe <coughs> where you're from if you'd like, that we just so that we can you can put your name out here since we have some new people. Um, my name is TJ. A little bit, a little bit louder. My name is TJ, okay. and I'm from Beach. Um, <coughs> Carla, and I live in Ben Lomond. Holly, and I live in Santa Cruz. Maryland, in SoCal. Bill, very close to Maryland. <laughs> Tom, in Santa Cruz. Joetta, Santa Cruz. Loretta, Capitola. Sheila, Santa Cruz. Sorry. Allison. Allison, Santa Cruz. Shayla Boulder Creek. Linda Capitola. Lila Santa Cruz. Um, okay. <coughs> um, this morning we spent a lot of time looking at right brain activity, looking at letting go of some of the things in our lives that we hold dear and near and how that feels to us. And there's a lot of feeling going on this afternoon. We're sort of using part of our, a lot of our left Buddha brain. Uh, we're going to be looking more at forms and um, things that we can fill out to help us make the process a little more gentle and uh, a little more easeful. And um, so please hold this time, even though we are doing more decision-making or judging in ways of preferences, hold, still hold this time this afternoon as Dharma practice and realize that even though we're working with those kinds of issues, feelings still arise. Still fear can come up, um, sadness can come up, joy can come up, any kind of, any, all kinds of feelings, and that's perfectly natural too. For you, and we will talk about it more, for the people that you're, you're, your loved ones in your life that you're having to communicate with about around these issues, around the issue of your death, or their death. Um, so <clears throat> you want to notice your inner reactions to things and hold them with compassion and care. Um, we want to advise you again or suggest again, re- re- remind you that we're, we're creating a safe space here. We want to make sure that you only speak for yourself and you only repeat the issues that you're talking about for yourself rather than 
something else that you heard in the room or what other people have to say. Um, and so you have confidence in that. And um, also remind you that Kim and I are not legal or health professionals or authorities. That we're just bringing to you the best to our knowledge of these around these issues. And uh, if things arise for you that are questions in terms of practice questions or issues around uh, Buddhism and death for you in particular, it might be something you go to your Kalyanamita friends or your teachers for, um, or other issues, legal or health issues, you might want to be talking to your doctors or people about those things. So keep that in mind also. Um, yeah, I just want to share a little story that's coming to mind as we're doing this day together. Um, Larry Rosenberg, who's one of the teachers at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center near Boston, uh, he's been doing this kind of work for decades. And he said that the very first time he led a day long on death and dying, he, um, he didn't do anything about creating a safe space or anything. And he just had all these people come in and he said, we're going to talk about dying today. He sort of like launched right into it. And he said this one man leaped up and ran out of the room screaming. <laughs> and so I'm happy to say that, that hasn't happened. We hope. It doesn't seem to have happened. So uh, I don't know. I don't know why that came to mind. <laughs> so um, we're going to start with one document. And all these documents... Where you're handing them out to you to work with as a group, or individually, as together as a song here, or afterward you're going to pick some of them up on the table over here. And I think with the numbers that we have, there's enough for everybody, fortunately. So we don't have to worry about that. Um, and actually, the first thing that we're talking about is a document, not so much about imminent death. It's about life right now. It's called the file of life. And um, the File of Life is a national program that comes out of Connecticut. Um, it, it's, a, uh, it's a quick history, quick medical history, and it also gives personal history and health, health history. And it's a file that you can carry in your wallet, or you put it also on a refrigerator door. And this would be the kind of thing that if you know someone who has a lot of medication, or someone who is at home alone and is kind of vulnerable, or you have an elderly, someone in your family who has chronic illness or is elderly, this could be a really good resource for them because, some, well, I'll give you an example. <laughs> um, I was at urgent care not too long ago, and uh, a woman brought her elderly mother in, and it was said out loud that her mother was unstable and confused, and she sat her mother down and went to the desk to um, get help from the medical um, the assistance there, and they asked for her medical history, her meds, a list of her meds. And the daughter went back to her mother, got the purse out, and it must have been 10 to 15 minutes. They searched and they searched, and mother got more and more confused. What are you looking for? I don't understand. Here's my list. And there was a list of you know friends or people she knew. She couldn't know, and the daughter was getting more frustrated because she couldn't find what the medical personnel wanted. And um, it was a lot of that suffering and confusion could have been eliminated by simply having a little file of life in her purse. Correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. Um, I've been told that uh, when paramedics come to pick somebody up because they need urgently to be cared for, they go to the refrigerator and look for this on the refrigerator and take it with the person. Yes. I mean, th that's 
Yes, this goes on the refrigerator, and they deal with the purse or the wallet. Yeah. Okay. So there's okay. and the same information on both, okay. and it just covers, um, you know, it covers who your physician is and what hospital you prefer and what your medications are and who's your close family contacts and all that. So it's just a real, it's a, a very quick, accurate, you know, kind of history of of health care for that person. So this is a can be a real valuable thing um, if. And I guess, uh, I suppose, <laughs> the little sticker, I suppose that could even be on the door or something like that, where someone's coming yeah. in the house. I know yeah. someone had it on the front door. Front door? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, it's endorsed by the fire chiefs of Santa Cruz County and so forth. This comes from the um, Volunteer Bureau. Santa Cruz Volunteer Bureau is Santa Cruz County uh, Volunteer Center. It's located on 17th at Capitola Avenue. And they have the file of life there, and fortunately they gave me uh, some of them, but if you want more or need more, that's where you can pick it up from. You can just go by there and get one from them. Uh, so What's the that organization again? Santa Cruz, uh, the, let's see, Santa Cruz County Volunteer Center of Santa Cruz County. It's also online. Okay. Volunteer Center of Santa Cruz County. I'll just add that yeah. another reason why this is really important is that if somebody, if you or someone is brought in and say you're unconscious and mm-hmm. nobody can know what your medications are, they're going to be giving you a bunch of stuff there in the hospital and if it's going to interact with what you're already taking. Yeah. Um, this happens all the time is that people get completely screwed up because of some non-fatal emergency but then they get the wrong medication and that kind of thing. So it's really helpful in that regard. Yeah, just to say, if you're taking any regular medication, it seems like we should have that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you don't need to wait until you have a uh, cute packet. You just put it on your refrigerator door or you get one of those really large empty pill bottles and you put it inside the pill bottle and put it in the, one of the shelves of your door and all of the paramedics are trained to go look for it. And they'll recognize the list of medications quite easily. Mm-hmm. This is just a, a way of organizing it for you if you want to. And, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Excuse me. You're trained to open the cabinets to look for something like this? Some refrigerator. 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 Not a refrigerator, but something about putting it in a big pill bottle. You know, you, have, you go by pills, and if you, uh, when you pick up your prescription medications, some prescription medications are large, and in order to have enough, there is a bottle that's about this tall. And that bottle that's about that tall, you can get an empty one, and you put your medication list in it, and you pop it in the door of your refrigerator. Oh, it is the door of the There will always be right. one on the team that goes to the refrigerator, looks on, if there's anything mm-hmm. on the outside, they'll grab it, or they'll look on the inside mm-hmm. and see if it's on the inside. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful if you have something like that, but don't even wait. Go do it today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other questions about that? It's interesting how people can even be resistant to this, you know, which is you know, gathering up their medication information, putting it in there, because you have to acknowledge, oh, maybe the paramedics are going to come and need to use this. And that, even that, you know, much less death or anything else, it can be a barrier to, uh, you know, wanting to consider that that possibility could happen to any of us. Yeah. And uh, what is the information that's requested? Uh, well, we have we can, but we have other ones that we want to work with today. And so, uh, let me just tell you what's on here. Um, 
It has your name and address and your doctors and the phone numbers, emergency contact name, address, phone numbers, and then special conditions, and then the medication dosage frequency, preferred hospital, pharmacy, phone, date of birth, blood type, religion, healthcare proxy on file, living will on file at, uh, recent surgery, uh, do you have DNR directives, which we're going to talk about, medical conditions, allergies, medical insurance. It's pretty pretty complete for a quick history. So, yeah. I'm sure another question that you may know or may not. Since you said preferred hospital on there, it caused me to wonder about, I've heard that you're taken to the nearest hospital, or is there something that you know about the distance that you can travel under that kind of situation? Like, for example, I prefer to go to Stanford, but I live near Watsonville. So maybe I could get to um, Dominican. I'm not sure. I just wondered if that might be something someone knew. Well, the, the most that I know, and this is, again, not, you know, uh, right. is that they take you to the closest. Uh-huh. However, once you're there and you have a health agent or you have material or whatever, then there's a chance of being moved around, if depending on what's going on. So, I, I don't know. I mean, that's well, they'll definitely thing. just take you to the closest. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so the next form that we're going to now we'll get into the forms talking about um, your own death and getting uh, getting prepared <laughs> prepared for thinking about our own own death and. This is um, an outline set up by some chaplains, which compiles information all about you. So take a look at this. It's going to go on. It's um, three pages back to back. The suggestion on the front is that you give a copy to a friend or a family member and keep it accessible. The forms that we give you, don't put them in a safe deposit box. Keep them where people can get to them and they know where they are. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. But, um, you know, if any of you have been an executive, executed a will, someone else's will, or if you've had anyone in your family, or a close friend die, you know that sometimes there's a lot of confusion after death about where are the papers? What kind of car insurance did this person have? Did they, where is, did they have long-term health care insurance? You know, what, do they own their property, the house that they live in? Or do they have a, you know, this code covers per, all kinds of personal, business, um, financial, legal matters related to your life. And it gives you a chance, it seems you probably have followed that a lot of these, but this gives you a chance to really compile it in a way that's all in one place and easily accessible. Um, survivor's benefits, insurance policies, property. And it goes on at the end, this was done by a group of chaplains, this wasn't specific for our program, but uh, preferences and plans for final rights at the end are on there also. And then remove the right information of your own on there. Um, so it's just another tool for helping to reduce confusion and suffering. Um, it helps your, your loved ones as well as yourself, knowing that people don't have to wonder where all these things are. And you don't have to run around trying to shuffle.
show them this is here and this is there and this is there and you can have it all in one place the information that you need you might reflect also whether there are other people in your life for whom you wish you knew all of this information and you not uh, for example actually um, my mother is coming tomorrow and as we were preparing this I thought you know what I'm going to give this to her again because um, I know some of this, but not all of it. And in, in considering that, uh, it's probably worthwhile to think about how to approach the topic with someone. <laughs> you know, walk up and say, well, I've been thinking about your death lately. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd like to find out all of your uh, financial information. <laughs> you know, so these kinds of things. And, um, you know, for us, as maybe as meditators or as mindfulness practitioners, it kind of makes sense that we're thinking about these things, but not for everyone. And so there can be this can be a, an issue in the relationship with people. I don't know if anybody has any examples of that. Uh, you've done something like this. Some of these things are not obvious either. Like um, you know, people may not know where all that stuff is, so it can be kind of an interesting process to sort through all of that try to uh, locate these documents and put it all in one place. And surprising things come to light after people have died often. It could, maybe there are things about you that people don't know that would somehow be on this form, or maybe someone in your family, perhaps someone in your family was in the military or that kind and you didn't even know it. Um, things like that happen. People don't know what to say. But if they're, um, if it's important to, you know, settling in the state and, and taking care of business that you get, it's really important to tap all that down in one place. Is this available online? It's just led through a funny sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. Can we get a clean copy of it? Uh, or even an online I think this, this was actually created by um, someone who does these kinds of workshops. And so we got the copies from her, and they were somewhat... We got permission. Yeah, we got permission to use them from her. And unfortunately, her copies were really, really light. So when I did them, I yeah. uh, made them dark. And then it had this effect. So we can try to get a first copy. Are there any questions about this? Yeah, right. Also on the table over here, um, some people perhaps have never seen a death certificate. So we have a copy of one, an example of a death certificate from, I think this one's from Kaiser, uh, but it gives you an idea of what's needed on the death certificate, um, what kind of information is needed. And of course, a lot of it is this kind of information, too. So, so um, when you pick the file off the other the death certificates over there also that you can pick one of those before you go to bed. So you can take a look at that. So, um, the next kind of major area that we wanted to cover is something that probably a lot, a word that a lot of people have heard, but um, 
maybe don't necessarily know the details of, and that is advanced directive. So this is a, we'll be giving some, something of an introduction to what's a very vast topic, and I don't know if we'll be able to cover all angles of it today, but we're going to explore and even, actually, if this is not all just lecture, we're going to have a chance to engage a little bit also with what this means. So advanced directives, what are they? They're legal documents, first of all, that allow you to spell out your decisions about end-of-life care ahead of time. So there are ways that you can, you know, in advance, make a directive about what you want to happen. Now, in a Buddhist sense, we can say immediately, yeah, right, (laughs) we don't have a lot of control necessarily about how all this happens. And yet, having information in place in advance and having thought about this and made some intentions and decisions does have a very real effect. It's not, um, yeah... So these are a good way to tell your wishes to your families, friends, and healthcare professionals, which has the effect of avoiding confusion later on. There are so many cases where somebody reaches terminal illness or end of life or incapacitation in some way, and it may happen suddenly. And then there's no documentation in place, and people get maybe in conflict about or at least confused about uh, what kind of treatments were wanted and who's in charge here anyway, um, who gets to make these decisions. And if no family member is really clearly stepping forth to do that, guess what, the medical professionals will make the decisions, the doctors will just decide. And there can be a lot of suffering around uh, this particular situation. So actually, it's a gift to have documents in place ahead of time. It's a very compassionate and loving thing to do to be able to offer this to your family in terms of this is what I would like, this is spelled out, this is who should make these decisions. And it's not always easy. It takes a little effort to get all that in place. So we want to begin the process here of giving you some useful information and maybe starting to think about some of these things. So advanced directives, uh, it's a very broad Uh, kind of topic, but it covers a number of different areas. You can break down kind of what do advanced directives cover. Different ones cover different portions of the total area. I wish it were simple and there were just like one thing and we all understood what that was, but there are many different kinds and many different types and this one covers this region and this one covers this region and this one overlaps a little bit of them. And we probably won't be able to give a totally complete picture of what's all out there but we hope to give a useful picture and give you the information that you need to understand kind of the total scene. So basically the main areas that are covered in an advanced directive, first of all, is medical treatment. And this means all kinds of life-sustaining treatment and level of pain control and other kinds of things uh, that can happen as somebody begins to reach the process of end of life. There are some of them that are kind of <coughs> clear, like you can, you know, deciding the level of pain control, how much morphine do you think is acceptable, and usually there you're balancing alertness against being in pain. So, And that's a very personal decision that people can think about. But then there get to be little trickier things, like, for example, uh, artificial nutrition. And, you know, if somebody can't take food, Are they going to have intubation in order to offer that, for example? If somebody can't breathe, how long shall they be kept? What criteria to be kept with oxygen? 
Um, also CPR in the case of um, if there's cardiac arrest uh, for somebody who's very elderly the process of doing CPR on somebody usually breaks ribs and usually causes damage and if somebody is very ill it can be a decision to say well if if their heart were to stop we're not going to put them through that and it's not a pleasant experience because when the paramedics come they grab the person and they rip their clothes off and you know it's like if the person is going to die anyway, which we can never know, but if they were, that's not maybe the way you want to see your loved one go. So these start to touch into very tender areas of this medical treatment. You know, and then people in your family may have different opinions for a given person about how that should come about. And so as you can start to hear as I'm saying all this, advanced communication is really helpful especially so that you're not in this situation of trying to make these decisions when you're also dealing emotionally with mom and, you know, all of that that's going to go with that. So the medical treatment, though, is just one portion. There's also the issue of who can make the medical decisions, and this is often called a healthcare proxy. And you can, you can name in these documents, you can name who you want to make your decisions for you. You may choose one of your children, or you may choose well your spouse. But if they're not, you know, available, then one of your children, or one of your friends, or someone else. My uh, aunt was the turned out to be the healthcare proxy for someone who was just kind of a friend of hers, because there was a family situation where he felt that he couldn't choose any of them as his healthcare proxy. All every situation happens. <laughs> every situation happens. And so it's very important when you're choosing a proxy, you may just, it may be obvious who you're going to choose, and they may understand that. But it's still nice, even if once you've done that, is to tell them, I've made you my healthcare proxy. Um, here's my essential information, which you might want to have. Um, and let's talk also a little bit about some of my wishes, because all those medical treatments that you've thought through, you know, you might, you need to communicate that to them somehow. And because this is a sensitive topic, people, you'll find this in your mind. Other people may do this unconsciously. You may be able to watch it if you're mindful. Is that there'll be a sense like, oh, I'm sure they just know. You know, I'm sure they understand um, what I want. They, they've known me for decades. But maybe not. Maybe it's not so easy to make a decision for somebody else. I know that it's um, a lot of, it can feel very stressful to be the healthcare proxy. I haven't personally done this, but I've witnessed someone who was. And even when that person does know the person who is ill, it feels like a tremendous responsibility. You know, you're, the doctor comes to you and says, okay, we can do X or Y. This one, you know, maybe they'll make it, and this one maybe they won't, but it'll be less painful. You know, all the, They sort of lay it out, and you have to ask questions. But then it's like, wow, it's not really that obvious. Even knowing their wishes, because they can never tell you for sure. It's always 40% chance this, 60% chance that. And so it can be, again, this is then becomes in the realm of compassion, giving a gift to really be open and you know, help people work through that. So these are the kind of left brain sorts of things, you know, medical treatment, who the person is, maybe also a person who makes legal or financial decisions. That's another kind of proxy. But we, as 
advanced directives have become more and more a part of the medical scene, um, they, I think they became kind of on the scene in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. when they started really being used. And then more and more through the 90s, they started adding, having to add more things to them. And just in recent years, they've started to realize that even if you lay out specific medical treatments and if you choose somebody to make decisions for you, it still might not quite cover everything because you can never know and you can never cover every case in advance. So the newest advanced directives include spiritual values and other meaningful wishes for you. So they actually include um, one's kind of one's values. So instead of saying, I want morphine if my pain is more than a seven for three days in a row, which is kind of what they would ask you before. Now they say things like, my value is that I'm a Buddhist meditator and I want to be as alert as possible. That's my primary goal, except that I don't want to be screaming, (laughs) you know, these kinds of things. And, you know, again, there's always going to be some judgment, but you can lay out your actual wishes, your values, um, these kinds of things. So advanced directives, they're done while you're still able to make decisions. There's something that we have to do now. They, um, they become activated if you become incapacitated and are unable to make decisions for yourself or choose for yourself or speak for yourself and, then, and the same for other people. So it's one of those cases where it's really hard to think through the... I at least, I've done one. I found it really hard to think through some of the issues uh, for myself, it's like, oh wow, that might really happen. And then, and yet, um, you have to really get down into the nitty gritty details. And we're going to have an experiential exercise where we do that. As you can imagine, it's more useful to have a person who understands your wishes and your values than it is to have some kind of a static document laid out ahead of time, because inevitably it's not going to cover the particular case that you have. But probably the best is to have both. So it is nice to have clear documents in place because that's really what the doctors are looking at for. They don't have time to say, oh, let's have a heart conversation about this and that while while we have to make a decision right now. They they want something in place. And yet uh, there may be time after you've solved the crisis to then talk about, okay, as we continue treatment, we're going to bring in these values and so forth. So I, I think it's pretty encouraging, actually, that the documents have been evolving from just a static thing in place to, okay, maybe we need a person involved who can interpret that document for you, all the way to, actually, you get to make this makes broad statements about what you really care about and what matters the most to you. These all come into play. And hopefully, there'll be, all of those dimensions will be possible if that person that you've chosen as your healthcare proxy is able to be a strong advocate in some ways. That's uh, another factor is when you're choosing one and you want to choose somebody that you think is going to be able to stand up to a doctor and make these kinds of decisions. Yeah. Are there trainings for people who are healthcare proxies to be able to be skillful at it? That's a great question. I bet there are. Has anyone heard of one? Maybe we should put one together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine listed five qualities that you know you would want in your healthcare proxy, and, and I'm thinking of a, a book that Letty Cotton Pogerman wrote called "How to Be a Friend to a Friend Who's Sick." Hmm. Incredible operating manual for how to show up for people when when we're not well. 
that I wish I had years ago, and it was just published in 2013. But I would love training, and I would love to know that the people that I would have to ask if they're not going to be family members mm-hmm. would have some skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter's a recent nurse, and she's yes. nice to you and all of that. And I'm talking about death and dying with her, uh, she says doctors die differently. What does she mean by that? There was an article actually. Do you have a Oh, it was just, it was real interesting. She wanted me to read this article, you know, because um, uh, she, she just became an ICU nurse uh, and started working in ICU in September. So, you know, it was a real awakening uh, to her. But, you know, what, uh, when, when, you know, either family members want, you know, I want them, I want you to do everything for them, you know, um, and yet what it puts people through is um, really, you know, really bad. Where doctors just, um, they just choose, you know, if I'm going to go, let me go, you know, keep me just comfortable, but do not do all these extra measures, you know, and so... You know, it was just interesting so, because. Oh, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when you say doctors die differently, you're just saying the choices they make are usually different than what the population at large yeah, makes in their choices at death, right. in, the, in the in active dying stage. Yeah, in the, well, not just the active dying, but you know, if somebody you know might have terminal cancer, and they know that. In their advanced directive. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That the doctors, you know, they don't want to go through all of the measures to try and, you know, be kept alive. You you might find an advocate source there and what we're doing here with the actual medical field itself or some aspect Mm of it. There's more information now about the amount of trauma that happens for people who are patients in the ICU. Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, that, that... not just physical trauma, but the kind of nervous system. The emotional trauma, absolutely. I read a statistic that said that 80% of healthcare costs occur in the last 90 days of life, yes. which is just amazing. And, well, you know, it's it's really a hard decision uh, when you get down to the, the wire and you're making choices where it's not clear how much longer... There's a, a real feeling of guilt that can arise mm-hmm. to say, okay, let's let's stop. Instead of saying, let's do everything that we can. Um, it's, it's very hard. You're talking about somebody else. Yeah. If you're making the decisions for... For your mother. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, for my mom, half, you know. <laughs> also, I've heard that the language that's used in hospitals can sometimes contribute to the way people make decisions. There was a period where doctors would ask, do you want us to do everything? To which the only answer is yes. <laughs> You're not going to say no, <laughs> don't do everything that you can. So they're starting to change the language a little bit about, you know, what's really important here or how would you like your mother to be treated at this point, something like that. Just, and just that little change of the frame of the language has an effect on how people respond. But isn't the question actually, how, what did your mother say about how she wants to be treated? And what did your mother say? Yeah, that would be very important. 
that's what we're going to move into in a little while. And when we do, you're going to, you're going to get some of the language yourself because when you look at the forms that we're passing out, the language, there's language in there that will be helpful, I think. Maybe it's worth bringing up one more thing that's coming to mind for me. It's a, um, In this room, it might be a little bit of an aside. I think most of us are Caucasian here, but I have heard that there's a, an eth- ethnic uh, issue with hospice and with end-of-life care where people of color often feel like they are dismissed by the medical system. And so when it gets down to the very end, they, they demand every single treatment be done. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be shut out of this system again, again, again. And, you know, that's just something we have to work with in our cultural heritage. But um, it's been noticed that differing populations also have a different response to how to treat end of life. Something to be aware of. Yeah, why don't you do that? Oh, what? Yeah. So, um, Kim mentioned that Advanced Directive is the big overall umbrella. Some of you may already have living wills. This is one way of doing it. An attorney sets it up sometimes as a living will, and in there might give a health agent and how generally how you want to be treated and go on with other information in that way. Um, that's one kind of advanced directive, a living will. It's not the only one. There are many, many different kinds. Different hospitals even have different forms of advanced directives. There's one uh, advanced directive called the POLST, P-O-L-S-T, P-O-L-S-T, Physician's Orders for Life-Threatening, Life-Sustaining, Life-Sustaining Treatment. Treatment. (laughs) Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And this is um, a bright pink form that we have over here. It's on two sides. We're not going to work with it today, but you can take it home and take a look at it. It's got a lot of information on it. People usually fill this out um, when they are older, Most, although it could be done at any age. It's a legal document. It is an advanced directive, but it's done with your doctor. And you bring it in, your doctor has it in their office, it has to be signed by you and your doctor together. So the physician knows about it, they keep a copy of it, you usually give a copy at the hospital, a copy at home, um, all over, yeah. What do you do, my physician at the Women's Health Center does not have hospital privileges, so I would be referred to a hospitalist who I would not have met. So how do you work with that situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you still yeah. do it with your own doctor. What was the answer? When um, somebody enters a hospital, and the first, and if somebody is elderly, when somebody's young, the question doesn't generally come up. So when I say young, I say 70 and under, and 75 and under, depending on how old the person then, um, then the general idea is that the medical community will do everything to help the person to recover. And for very good reasons, because there's no future recovery. But when somebody has cancer, when somebody has advanced heart disease, and it's clear to the physician, to the family, to the patient, that it is unlikely where they can get sick that they would have any quality of life in terms of recovery. And the question comes to be if you can't speak for yourself, do you want us to put a metal tube down your throat and 
supposed to ask that question with complete respect, not based on what they would want, what they've seen, what they believe, but so that person can have complete freedom. And also they educate. If we were to do CPR, we might very well break your ribs, we might puncture your lung, it might be painful to breathe. Would you like to have that happen? If you can't speak for yourself, and you can't eat, would you like to put us to put it in a tube to go directly into your stomach so that we can feed you and keep you alive? And people can give their response. And that is that post form. It's, it's basically four or five simple questions. One of them is if you were to have an infection, would you want to be transferred to a hospital or would you want to stay where you are? And people can answer these questions. And the reason for that is we want everyone to have the care that they want. We don't want them to have the care that we would want. We want them to have the care that they want. And as I mentioned, the medical professional, um, even just working in the kitchen, they have a sense that our duty is to save life and life. And we will do everything in our power so that everybody gets this equal opportunity. And at the same time, to become aware that the time of dying is very personal. And however that extends into life, we want everybody to have the experience that they want. So part of that experience is being able to maintain one's own physiology, one's own independence in terms of breathing and fluids. And, you know, so since we have the ability to provide this care, we want to ask respectfully, do you want this care? Is this care going to be helpful for you? Or is this care something that you're hoping to avoid? And, and we try to be able to have people that so they understand what will happen. And, and pretty much people do understand because they've had parents and aunts and uncles and unfortunately children who have gone before. And, and so that's where the medical community is standing. Right here and responsive. And so we want to look at 
what are the decisions I want for myself? Or if I can talk to my mother, or I, my mother's mother, if I was talking to a relative, if I can bring up, get into the conversation with her, which we'll talk about, you know, what are the decisions while this person is really talking and, and, and able to tell us what they want? So that, because in all medical care, the patient's wishes do come first. They are the most, they are held sacred, whatever that patient wants. But it needs to be clear about what they want. Do you have a question? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I just got lost. But it was very um, uh, interesting contribution there, but I, I still got lost with just that particular answer to your particular question, Leela, about what happens with your doctor not having hospital privileges, and if you did that form with your doctor, then how does that work? That, that well, was even if did you get your answer, Leela? Uh, it's in a company where you're not. Yeah. Okay. If so it's where I am, that's the other tricky that's thing, the, is if it's not where you are when you're transported, what is it? Yeah, this is one challenge. The system is yeah. not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And there are also these multiple forms, right? If you have a false form and then you have also a file of life form mm-hmm. and various other things and the <laughs> medical people come. So one thing that's incumbent on all of us is to make sure all of our forms are consistent. And if you change one of them to make sure you've looked and changed, particularly mm-hmm. if you change your healthcare agent, it's got to be changed on all forms. And so even if you've done that form with your personal doctor, the point being you have yourself rather than... Yeah, you should keep a copy for sure yourself. Because yeah, your doctor may not You would make copies of it. You could yeah, make copies of it. Okay. So I guess I'm wondering if, if this file thing that you showed initially, if you carried something like that on your person with information saying my advance directive is with my physician. Mm-hmm. That can be if really helpful. Like that could get communicated to the That's hospital. Helpful. It's helpful. You have to think, we, we, if we go further along, some of these questions will be answered, but you, have, you want to think about yes, all the ways in which, who are all the people that need to have this, and it is, one of the forms I'm going to give you, it is lined out who to give this to, and um, keeping copies and, and making sure uh, what it'll come up that if you do, uh, we're going to work on the five wishes. If you do the five wishes, that is a, a legal uh, advance directive. And if you've already got, for instance, for me, I have a living will, and I'm going to do the five wishes, then I revoke my living will, that part of it. If it's, you want to do that anyway, because you want to do the most recent uh, advance directive that you have. And that needs to be known that this, you know, it has to be written down and, wow. and told to the doctor or whatever. So they're all, they're all, they are legal documents in California. The POST is, um, as was said, it's really for someone who's really older or really vulnerable uh, the, uh, in, in the chance of um, probably could be dying in the not too far future. I do know someone who was in her mid-80s who asked her physician to do the pulse with her, and the physician said, no, you're perfectly healthy, I'm not going to do a pulse with you. Um, then you find a physician who will. Physicians do have the right to say, I don't want to f- sign that form with you. So, now that one requires a physician's signature, as we said. So you can, and there's, it's, it's, like I said, on the back of it is a lot of information that give you, answer a lot of specific questions about that document. It covers these very specific things about the health agent 
and how you want it to specifically be treated for pain and, and uh, life-sustaining um, issues. Yeah. Well, okay. I don't understand why that one would be just for elderly people if it's important information. Because it's only for very for life sustaining treatment. Yeah. Like if someone is about to die, are we going to intubate them and give them but food? At some point, all of us are going to be there. True. Yeah. No. Actually, my doctor sent me a post and asked me to fill yeah. it out and file yeah. it with him. That's why we brought them, so you know, and see if it's something you want to use. Yeah. So I'm starting to get. Well, what we're saying is, we'd like to. Yeah, we're exactly going to give you another right. form that we think goes beyond the post. The post gives you medical okay. treatment and for life sustaining. Yeah. And health proxy. That's it. That's it. Yeah. In the future, we'll have RFID chips, right? <laughs> Maybe that'll be one more thing. It is confusing. It is yeah, confusing. It's, it's not simple. It's not simple. Yeah. 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 Are you familiar with the Conversation Project? Ellen Goodman's a journalist, and she started. You have a dinner, and you invite your advanced directed people to the dinner. Oh, that's a great idea. It's yeah, called yeah. the Conversation Project, and they have help you set up how to have the How to have the conversation. Exactly. Right? Let's have a break. But part of it was that her mom got to the hospital with thousand advanced directives, and they did everything. Yep. That can happen. Okay, so we're good for having a little break, and then when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll engage with an actual advanced directive. You'll get a chance to think about some of those questions. Come back at two forty-five. Ten minutes. Yeah, ten minutes. Doctors and nurses are more looking for If we um, States that hasn't actually approved it yet. It's done in 46 languages. Oh, 26? Why did it 46? Um, and Braille. And it was developed by this fellow named Bill Tuley, who worked for Mother Teresa, worked with Mother Teresa for 12 years, and then he lived in a hospice 
could, uh, that she had in Washington, D.C., for a year. And he saw a lot of suffering. He saw a lot of uh, confusion, a lot of problems going on when people had advanced directives that just said about treatment and agent but didn't give any other information about what people wanted um, at the time of their death or how they wanted to be treated, how they wanted to be treated after their death and so forth. So he developed this, this uh, paper with the, with the um, cooperation of the Ameri- uh, American Bar Association. I believe their legal, their legal as- legal aid aspect of the American Bar as- uh, Association. So it's a legal document. At, at the end, when, sometime when you do finish it, if you do decide to use it and finish it, you would have two witnesses. And it tells you that what the beauty of this document is, it is so complete. It gives you just everything on it. It's very, um, very uh, specific. And we're, what we're going to do is look at the first two wishes together, give you some time to look at those on your own quietly and work with them a little while. Then we'll look at the last three wishes and give you some time to interact with them here as a, as a group in the room before you leave. And then you can take it with you when you leave. And even if you decide not to use the five wishes and stay with what you have, it's going to give you a lot more information, a lot more clarity about where, where am I headed for in this, in this process, in this transition? What do I want? How do I want to be treated? What kind of comfort do I want? What do people, I want people to know about me? Um, you won't be able to just go through, like I ho- had hoped when I first got it and got my pencil out and, <laughs> and do it and have it done. Um, it's, it takes thought. It takes time. Um, it's a document, again, that you want to share with people you love. And um, particularly, of course, you have to ask your health agent to work, health care agent, to, uh, the person you want to have help you with that, talk with them. But it, it goes on to the personal, emotional, and spiritual needs. It goes beyond the legal and medical. It goes to the emotional, spiritual um, needs, beyond the medical needs. Um, let's see here. Um, okay, so you can order these online, and if, and if later on we can give you a phone number for it. And you'll have a pencil or pen if you need that. Okay. And um, wish number one is exactly what we were talking about. By the way, you're, you're just missing the first couple of pages, which is the introductory stuff, I think. Or the introductory stuff is well, yeah, the last couple of pages. Oh, last couple of pages. Okay, so you, let's go to wish number one for a minute. This is the one about uh, my health care proxy or health care agent. Who is going to make decisions for me if I am unable to speak for myself? I'm either unconscious or could be dementia. Uh, whatever the situation is, if I cannot speak for myself and make my own decisions. And how did they arrive at that? That has to be approved of by two doctors, actually. It takes a doctor to say this, this person needs to have someone speak for them, and another doctor has to agree to that. Two doctors. Unless you, well, you wouldn't be agreeing to it, you'd be conscious still and saying, here's what I want. And you'll see that right at the top. My attending or treating doctor finds I'm no longer able to make healthcare choices, and another healthcare professional agrees with this. The second one would not necessarily need to be a doctor. And down at the bottom of this form, it talks about how to pick your healthcare agent, which Kim spoke about a little bit, so you can look at that. And then it goes on to be really specific about some things, that, choices that you want or don't want. And you can cross things out and you can add things to it. So we're looking at pages four and five right there, okay, about healthcare proxies. 
And this would be part of any advanced directive. It's wish number one. You wouldn't have it in a living way. Not as maybe not as complete as this. You wouldn't have all these other specific things going on particularly, always. But as far as designating somebody, that would be in any advanced care directive. So that's that's wish number one. Um, wish number two that we'll look at, and then we'll give you some time to spend with these by yourselves for a few minutes, is uh, the kind of medical treatment you do or you do not want. So it's both what do I want and what don't I want. Okay. Which may be different questions. Yeah, yeah. right, right. It's interesting. Um, it also explains what these different items mean. So what do, what do they mean by life support treatment? People don't have to guess what you mean. Um, there's a lot of clarity possible there. Um, as we know, there's no certainty around how this is all going to come about. But um, again, it's you're, you're doing the best you can to provide information to people so there's less confusion, less suffering, and you can have your own wishes met. So this is about medical treatment. It gives you the definition of life support, what that is. Uh, and there's choices here. If I'm close to death, what I want. If I'm in a coma, not expected to wake up, what I want permanent or severe brain damage, um, other conditions which I, which I do not wish to be kept alive. So it's, it's quite um, specific, and it gives you a lot of situations to look at. Do you want to add anything to him there? Well, all I'll say is that um, clearly these conditions have been distilled out of what is often seen as the areas that are the most problematic. You know, somebody is in a coma, somebody has permanent and severe brain damage, you know, of course, there are going to be other situations, but I, I like that the kind of the four big ones have been kicked out for us. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, it's <coughs> nice that they give a definition of life support treatment that medical professionals understand, and then you can limit that yourself by writing in the space underneath that you don't agree with certain of those, or your because some people that's their religion limits it, mm-hmm. some people your own personal choices limit it. So I feel that this has a kind of an empowering feel to mm-hmm. me as I'm doing it in terms of, wow, I actually get to choose. And then it, you know, then it's very personal about how you think about that. So yeah. we can hold this as practice also as we approach it. Absolutely. Uh, it does bring up a lot of feelings around it. And the reason we handed out pencils, if you don't have one, or somewhere yeah. else, is you're liable to change, you know, you read it through don't and go, oh, I didn't quite understand <laughs> that probably. I need to change that one. It, it, you know, the, it's not language maybe that you're used to. Um, Maybe you've never read it before, so okay. a few more. Yeah. Although technically, if you're going to do it, you should probably get that blue form that she has. Oh yeah, this one doesn't have the signatures. You want it. We want it. But this is a working form. You can a process a working process. So eventually, it'd be better to get the actual formal one, and you can get it um, at actually just a one eight eight five wishes. That's how you can get it by phoning in, or you can go online too. One eight eight five wishes, and five wishes is spelled out five nine four seven four three seven, and that's how you could order the actual document. A lot of the hospitals will have it. Sometimes the doctor have it. We're chaplains. We can get them in the chaplain's office. You know, sometimes we'll be going up to a patient's room, and there'll be a little note on there, and it'll say AD, no AD, meaning that this is an older patient, maybe somebody. 
93 years old in the hospital, they don't have contacts maybe for that person, they can't find any advanced directive, the hospital is asking us to make sure that the patient gets some kind of advanced directive because there's a chance that the patient may die while they're in the hospital. And there's no information about that patient. So this is why, we're, of course, we're working on it, you know, while we're not in that situation. But um, anyway, so work this with it. While you're looking at this, look, use a pencil until you really feel like you're uh, finalizing it. And when you finalize it, it's probably a good idea to get an original form. But you can Xerox them. Xerox forms. Are That's okay. Yeah. Spend about 10 minutes, maybe. Yes. We'll, we'll ring the bell when it seems to be the end. No, not in California. Just two witnesses. But uh, right now, just work with wish one, one, and, one two. and two. Wish one and two. And then we'll go on. We have time. We'll do three, four, and five. And we will have time to do the others. Read through one and two and see if there's anything you want to work on at this point or questions to ask yourself on there and so forth. What I'd like to do is talk about... Are there any comments or anything that came up from reading Wishes 1 and 2? Any reactions or responses or more questions? This is either very obvious or very confusing. I do not want anything done or admitted by my doctor or nurse with the intention of taking my life. And so basically that's saying do everything you can. Mm -hmm. So in that case, if one didn't want that, they would just stop it. Yeah, just talk it off. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me... So, I mean, that would, contradict, that, would, that would contradict something that you might later say, I don't want these things, and yet this thing is, you'd have to cross this up to make sure that... Yeah, you got to be a little smart to yes. build this out. Yeah. For me, that sentence, I left out part of it. I do not want anything intentionally done. I read the whole sentence, and then read it again. I do not want... No, and, and anything intentionally not done to help me a little bit to well, well, basically parse it out. My doctors to kill me. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because the intention of taking life is, yeah. is different it's than different. withholding. Yeah, than withholding life and passion, for yeah. example. Yeah. It, it brings up some subtleties, right? Yeah. Is when is it intentional and when is it not? And those actually have a big difference in Buddhist practice, also. I don't want to associate with the doctor. there's that whole issue of morphine and. Uh, and slowing down respiration but there's uh, opiates mm-hmm. that are used to help somebody can be used but to help somebody out faster so there's a very real issue about when that might happen well there is um, it's called double effect and there is some legalese around this and I don't can't you know again we're not legal ex- experts but I do know that, that I think it, my understanding of it is that, that doctors and hospice as well can intend to make you more comfortable, to lessen your pain, but they are not intending to kill you, <laughs> intending to take your life. And you so know, it's, it's pretty much it's, illegal. Yes, it's a legal thing and it's fuzzy and it's, <laughs> you know, but there is, you know, yeah. so it's, it, it yeah. is addressed legally and it's addressed medically for doctors and all, but um, yeah. I've found it. Oh, go ahead. I don't know if anybody's read the book called By Grace and Memorial. It's a, it's a book about um, the situation after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, mm-hmm. where a hospital was um, isolated by the flooding mm-hmm. and care couldn't get the nurses and, and um, physicians, uh, care staff were there, and about 21 patients ended up probably euthanized. Um, having been given poor care before that, it's just a crisis situation, an extremely unusual situation. 
and it was prompted by uh, these patients being uh, do not resuscitate mm -hmm. and the misinterpreted to mean not give comfort to the patient. Yeah. It was a, a, a negligence. It's an extremely unusual situation. I think the more usual situation, I agree, is, is the, the, the risk-benefit situation of some medical therapy that goes awry. That's a good comment in the one wasn't the main focus of your comment, but you did point out that do not resuscitate doesn't mean do not treat, right. do not do anything, which is, they started to change the language on do not resuscitate, right, to something else, I forget what it is, um, no aggressive measures or something like that, in order to make it clear to people that it doesn't mean we're just going to sit there and, you know, not do anything. I found I had a little bit of an emotional response, interestingly, even though I filled this out myself and done it. When I was just reading through these four on um, Wish 2, you know, the first two, there's these three choices in each of them. And the first two are very clear. I want to have life support treatment. I do not want it. If it's been started, I want it stopped. That's, that sounded quite abrupt to me. And then there's a kind of a middle way. But it was interesting to me to feel how those words landed this time. Let's go on to three, we're going to look at briefly at three, four, and five, and then give you some more time to work with these. Um, this three is about how comfortable you want to be um, at the end of life. And you're given a list of items, and again, you get to choose what you want to keep or what you want to leave off. And you can add things in here also. Um, they're very personal requests, and they can make your, the process of dying more peaceful, more comfortable, more easeful, hopefully, for you and your loved ones and help to eliminate some of the confusion around that time. So how how comfortable I want to be. And there's a list on there you'll be able to read through. So these are the ones that are getting beyond the medical, um, actual life-sustaining medical treatment and so forth. And of course, these are wishes that your health agent and your family needs to know about. I had a question, but I'll wait till after we have work on it. Wish for how I want people to treat me. And again, let me give a, a choice of list, a list of choices here. Um, it, it takes some time to work with these again, because if you're thinking about your Buddhist practice, you may have some points of view around this, or you, if you have other religious practices, you know, may come into this aspect of things. Somebody have a question? Yeah. Just tongue in cheek, uh, a retired physical therapist turned me out to this form, and she thought Wish for was a really good place to insert chocolates once a week. Chocolates. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it mentions. Just a few of silence to read through this without even talking. Oh yeah, we're going to do that. Just a minute. I was going to mention five, and then we're going to have lots of time here. Um, yeah, I think it mentions about music in here, but didn't mention yes. chocolate, so yes. you might want to include that. Yes. And wish five, uh, what I want my loved ones to know about me, um, and how you want to be remembered, memorial service, other wishes. If you would like to include it in Okay. So, okay, so we'll give you a good amount of time because these ones take uh, a little longer. Yeah. So, um.
at least 20 minutes or so. Yeah. Looking at these last three, and any questions coming up that you or anything you'd like to talk about regarding the last three wishes? <coughs> a little trickier, huh? Yes. When uh, I heard that my, my family member had passed away, Nancy had donated the body. So um, I thought, well, gee, yeah, because cremation, I don't know much about it, but it seems like it creates a carbon footprint. Um, and um, burial is just too expensive. I forget. In other words, uh, do we know how easy it is to say when I die, take my body and use it for whatever, the whole body, not just parts of that? I think it's pretty easy. There's a form for it, of course. <laughs> but um, yes, and I know somebody else who's filled out that form. There is something interesting to know about that, which is that I, you said take what and do whatever you want with it. Uh, I think it's true that we don't get a choice about what happens with our body. And there are multiple things that happen if it's donated. If, it's, if the whole body is donated, most likely, I think, is that you end up as a cadaver in a medical lab for people to do research on. But other options include actually being a crash test dummy in the car industry. A crash test dummy, right? They need to know how the human body responds to impact to make cars safer. So you can't this is a day where we're talking about everything. You're going, you don't need to specialize. And I feel a little bit hesitant to say this in, in our open state, but another thing is that the military does use bodies to determine how bullets enter flesh. So there are various things, and I'm not sure we get to choose, although there may, I think if enough people knew about that, there would be a movement to be able to specify. Well, actually, you yeah. can do it just like you can donate it to like Stanford or UCSF. If you donate to a specific institution, then you <coughs> the research within that institution. <coughs> so that may be the way to go if you're worried about these other yeah, uses. Yeah, because I think it's mm-hmm. <coughs> Yeah, maybe she specified that. Yeah, and she, she wanted to see San Francisco. I was wondering how oh, great. Was, so. I love that. She not only got ordained, but she was sent to San Francisco. Eco burials. Anybody have you heard of Air burials? Or no. green, green burials. Or green. There's a place in Soquel. And oh, in Marin. Soquel, really? There's one in Soquel and one in Marin. They're very expensive. They're expensive, but they're nice in that they don't include all the embalming fluids, which are not very healthy for the earth to put mm-hmm. in. And what they do is they actually just have this kind of big area, and they put a GPS <laughs> where the person is, and you can go find the body that way. Is it, is it open? Is yeah. It, well, it's buried. But oh, it's buried. Yeah. It's buried without but any it's buried in, just in a shroud. Shroud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can also, from mortuaries, you can get, I call them big flower boxes. Back in the old days, you could order, get big, you can get a cardboard box from a mortuary. You do yes. not have to get a casket. You, to get you a just casket. request a cardboard box for your, mm-hmm. yeah. and they know that, but that you don't hear about that. Carla. I just had, I noticed on the, the three and four, there's no space to add things. I added them anyway on mine. Okay, that's, <laughs> and then is the, it you also, can change it also. So yeah. if I wanted, like the first one too, it's like, 
do I just cross things off and add, you know? Ask yeah, you can. You can cross off. Instead of, I do not want to be in pain, I thought I do not want to be in severe pain. I think I had something And then I, I said, I want to have some alertness, which is mm-hmm. what you brought up before. So you, that's how you do it. You just, yep. okay. Mm-hmm. You know, at the, at the back of this document, it says five, and you don't have these pages. Uh, we couldn't get, we couldn't just get all these copies. I mean, I think, I don't know. They're like five dollars, maybe five dollars. Five wishes is meant to help you plan for the future. It is not meant to give you legal advice. It does not try to answer all your questions about anything that could come up. Every person is different. Every situation is different. Laws change from time to time. Uh, If you have specific questions, you can talk to a medical or legal person. Then it gives you a wallet card. This one also has a wallet card. And on the wallet card is... I have the advanced directive, and you sign it. This five wishes is the advanced directive. Here's the healthcare agent, here's the primary physician, and here's where the document's located. And that's another wallet size. <coughs> now you can see that there's a, the file of life has other specific things about medical information. This is quite different than that. So, you know, there's another wallet card here. And this is the, and on the back is this witness. Uh, like I said, just two witnesses, yeah. not 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 notary. You do not have to have a notary, but you, you know you have to wait and get together with them <clears throat> and sign it in their presence. The most important thing is you have to talk to the person you want to be your healthcare agent. You've got to talk to your doctor. Yeah. You've got to talk to a doctor. You've got to give them copies. You've got and it talks about all that in here also. It tells you um, back here. It says you know make sure that you. Talk to your agent, your family members, and give them copies, and talk to your doctor at the next visit to make sure he knows he or she knows everything, so forth. So give you quite a bit of detail, as you can see when you read through it. The other thing I wanted to say about <coughs> doing it is it's such a brings in permanence so mm-hmm. to mind. I mean I realized at one point that you know, the people I would have had be that already outlived. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it asks you to name three also. Yes, the backup. backups, basically. And I had to think through that a little bit. I mean, by the time I got down to the third one, I had to think a little bit, you know, who was, who's the third person I would trust with all of this. Yeah. And some of these things, I mean, you don't, you don't realize, I mean, if you're, if I'm in a coma, and my family standing there saying, do it, you know, do this, do that, or whatever. You know, I don't have any control over that, right? And so it's so important they say this, because I may have some really different points of view than they do, and they need to know that ahead of time. They need to know that now. So That's what the conversation project is for. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. It sounds really valuable. Yes. Yeah. You did a good job with it. I don't know if this is legal or not, but what I did with my five wishes also is that I wrote a supplement to it, like an appendix, <coughs> where I actually wrote out some um, kind of, I don't want to say philosophy, but kind of my own values that didn't seem quite captured in this, and then I attached it as a supplement and signed it. It says you can add additional say you can to add? it, as long as you're seeing right. your, your witnesses signed it, too. Yeah, they saw, oh, they saw it, I mean, yeah. if they signed it. You might have okay. one witnesses signed it. I'm just thinking about this legality versus informational aspect because as I look at the states, um, the state that I'm going back to on Monday to visit my elderly folks in is not one of them. That's not one of the 42? Yeah, but I'm thinking that 
regardless of that, that this could still be a helpful informational yeah, thing absolutely. in it so many ways. Have this conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that. So you know what they want. Yeah. You know what they want. Yeah, that's really important. So you're probably, yeah. Maybe, maybe they're helping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the important thing. Other, here's an example of what another state might have. It just says advanced care directed kit. You know, it's something from a hospital gives out. So there's all kinds of them. This is just, you know. We just like this one because it has all the spiritual, personal values on it. It's quite comprehensive. I don't know if this is what Leah is talking about, but there's an advanced care planning conversational guide by the Coalition for Compassionate Care of California. I found this online. And it gives how to, it says how to uh, approach this, how, ways to raise the issue, how to respond to concerns. This is when you talk to family members. Um, what's if, it's, if they say this is too hard to talk about? You talk about how it's very important to our family, and we don't want to guess what you would like. What you would like, we feel, we'll feel anxious if we don't make the right decision for you. It gives you language and ideas on how to approach that questions you might ask. And this was just something I had copied off of line from the Coalition of. C, it's www.coalitionccc.org, Coalition for Compassionate Care of California, um, www.coalitionccc.org. It's helpful conversation. Teresa, in terms of other state phones, my lawyer had me do was actually download and sign the California state's official advance directives and staple it to my five wishes. And I think each state has one that you could get online, so you could get the advanced directives form for the state where your parents are and have that available. The main thing would be that those treatments, the health agent and those treatments, are the same on any of the advanced, any of those kinds of forms, any of these forms. Yes. So you don't have confusion about it's a problem if you have two healthcare agents named on two different forms or two different yeah. types of treatment too. What do you want? To, what do you want? So that's that wishes one and two that you're looking at that need to coordinate with the pollster. Anything else that you're using? Yeah. I'd like to say um, you read through which which three and which four. It's a really very nice way to care for somebody at the end of life. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes we really don't know what to do. We don't always have training. But this really talks about how to care for somebody when they can't say that they're thirsty or cold or they start looking very carefully for clues and it's a very beautiful way of communicating I'm curious, have you seen people who have the five wishes form? Yeah, it's a fairly new one. You know, the reality is that it's people don't ask you, you know doctor I have never been in a position where somebody says show me your form because right. if you know you know your mom's very sick your dad's very sick your daughter's sick it was a, we, we don't we don't think that she has a, chance, a good chance she's great you know the prognosis doesn't look good what did she want did she say what she wanted and you can see how sick the person is Dear the headlights. Yes. You know, like the person still sick. And, and everybody wants to do what they want. Everybody tries. But getting this kind of care in which three and which four, that kind of care gets in addition to what we can do. 
that person that has some kind of mistake. There was not much clarification about hydration either. I know when I signed the advance directives for my mother, they really explained that if I chose separately from feeding to do the hydration, that it would actually prolong life, and she chose not to have hydration. She did not want that phase prolonged, and there's nothing very specific about hydration. Yeah, it seems we've only said chewing. mouth and lips for dryness. Well, it doesn't say anything about hy- Oh, and which two has it? Um, okay. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It's it's food and water supply. Food and water Oh, so they're separated. They're lumped together. Two feet. Yeah, they're separate tubes, obviously. Well, it's confusing because it says two feeding. I just wrote in hydration. Yes, that seems wise. And there's there's so many things that we have, you know, we cannot control. Like, again, we're just doing the best we can. There's a difference between dying in the hospital and dying at home. And, And whether it's a something that happens uh, as a crisis or immediacy or something that's more long-term. So all these things have, have effects on So all you can, again, I, from my point of view, I think all I can do is hedge my bets and try, okay. to, try to make the best um, best possible chance that chance, something yes. can happen. Yeah. Oh, we don't know. Yeah. Even it says, <laughs> it says, I wish I had my hand held and be talked to when possible and they're like well it depends who you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Do I want to have people with me well which people <laughs> it's so it's very you do your best and hope for the best yeah. I was thinking about for, on mine for if I was at home that well, even in a hospital room you know to write in there that I would like it to be fairly quiet and if you can talk to me you know you want you need to talk at one at a time and not not standing around chit chatting around my bed you know, and they know we know that the hearing is probably the last thing to go, and people stand around in the hospital room or in, a, in a, at home or wherever and talk about the person like they're dead, and they're still hearing you. If they're still, in, you know, they're at the end of life and not haven't died yet. You know, so there's things uh, that uh, I think I mentioned that I wanted the room to have um, sunlight and some space, like not really cluttered and crowded, if possible, and. Maybe a window, if possible. Maybe an altar if you're at home. Yes, things there. like that can be really yeah. meaningful. Yeah. You know, one of the most, one of the most beautiful deaths I was ever privileged to be present for. The person really liked music. They had this caregiver come toward the end, and, and he was a very perceptive person. And he uh, he made a, like a he like did a playlist, and, and it was the most beautiful music. And, um, and, you know, somebody came and did a mass, and, and, and the family was there. But what I realized is that the, um, the music that they were playing was the music that they had played for um, birthdays, for Sunday dinners, mm-hmm. for weddings. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was incredibly beautiful, and, and it, it was a very rich emotional experience. And, and like, it occurred to me, we plan our birthdays. We plan our weddings, mm-hmm. but we can also plan our death in this way. We can say, you know, I would like to hear chanting. I would like to hear music. You can, you can make it, and it, and it creates an atmosphere for, for the person who's dying, and also for all the people who are present. And it's, it, it's an incredibly emotional moment to be with someone in their last hours, days. It's, it's a very beautiful thing. And we can think of it in that way, and how can we make it beautiful, mm-hmm. meaningful, 
And then there are the people who want to die alone. I know my mother's sister, her daughter was with her, and and she was with her, and she was with her, and then she went to lunch, and we kind of peg like My mother was, I could tell, she was trying to wait for me to go for a walk, and she wanted to die while I was gone for the walk, but the caregiver's going, you can't leave me alone with her. Uh, but, I, but I could feel that. She just, that was how both of those people in that family were. They just wanted to slip out by themselves. Whereas That's my aunt, we sang her out, and there were 12 people in the room. It's fairly common that people choose to die alone. Choose. It's, it's possible. Sometimes, for various reasons, they want to be alone, or it's hard to let go, so they, have, you know, they don't want the person there, and then they can just slip out. We don't know all those motivations, but it can it can be like that. It's mysterious time. You know, it's it is interesting. You know, I can sort of I have two thoughts. You know, I, I can come up with opinions or ideas, but I really don't know what I'll want. At that that's time. the other thing. Is, yeah. that's you know, said, your process. views may change. Yeah. <laughs> time to think about it. If I'm not terminally ill, I don't know exactly what that state is going to feel like. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Part of what we hope for is that people can be attuned. Yeah. And that attunement sometimes is really hard to come by. <laughs> yeah, practice your mindfulness. <laughs> be that person for someone. Yeah. Other people have. I just think this is very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. It, it parallels the trend in, in medical care or in institutions for more involvement mm-hmm. in decision-making um, by the client to a patient rather than an authoritarian top-down kind of, of care. Mm-hmm. And that's been happening over the last 50 years or so, and this is probably part of it. And I think it's a very welcome part, mm-hmm. very helpful. One of those powerful meditations, I've actually never been at someone's death. I've had death in my family, but it was while I was um, away. Or, um, and it's in the death of Ivan Illich by Leo Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody's read that, but it's a story about this bourgeois guy who's uh, busy, 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 busy getting his palatial home all fixed up, and he hurts himself, and then he, it gets worse and worse and worse, and then his doctor says, you, you know, we can't cure it, you're dying. And he was just this, this kind of superficial man, but in his last moments, he was being cared for by his servant. And his servant reached out and took his hand. And at that moment, Ivan Illich realizes that that's what life is about the holding of the hand. You know? And that's where that part here, what my hand held, um, it's a touch. It's a big touch. Um, it's interesting that they put that in there. Yeah. So we can. Oh, go ahead. I just want to throw in there. You know, there are times I've heard this from people when a loved one is dying who um, needs to hear from someone else in the family in the tribe that it's okay. It's yeah, it's okay to let go. Yeah, it's really helpful. I think that's really difficult for people to do, but very helpful. Yeah. 
we'll be okay. We'll all be okay. Well, we can move toward uh, wrapping the day up. Some of you have been here all day, others not. But either way, uh, this is a time to share anything that would make the day feel complete or any other comments or questions that are kind of <coughs> bubbling in your mind or heart. I want to thank you both for carrying me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Profoundly meaningful. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, so. That was very, very, very helpful. I love the five wish, the thought and mm-hmm. care and consciousness that went into that. I like the uh, thought that was raised by our uh, professional at the end of the world. I can't quite see your, your name, but, but uh, how we, I guess if you, how we give a lot of thought to preparing for you know, celebrations yeah. and for weddings. And, uh, so this is a you know, wonderful design opportunity. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> The planners can really get into this. One thing. So I was going to mention another one I, I know, but we have these little incidences of people we know. Another woman I know that died, her, she asked her friends that she got a, a cardboard carton, a cardboard coffin, and they all came with their markers and colors and decorated her coffin. Before it went for cremation. And they, they all came. Was it like wow. a party, like her memorial, part of her memorial, like signing a yearbook? Yeah, yes, yeah, signing your life book. Um, While well, she was in. <laughs> yeah, she was. Yes, she, she had died. Sorry. She was inside. Yeah. And they wrote. I I would having just gone through being part of the participating some with Nancy Gill's last days as part of the Sangha I would I also want to say I'm thinking about these in terms of it, it was well, what I want to say it was so it was beautiful the whole experience and how people the Sangha came together to support her and be with her and make the last days what she wanted and I kind of feel that that's um, not just our friends and our family, but I see this for the Sangha being really important as who who I want to support me in my last... I mean, I want family and other friends too, but it's really um, thinking about how the Sangha can be there for all of us, each of us, as we come to the end of life. So... Maybe some sanghas would choose to have a five wishes party and everybody can get yeah. together and fill it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, we do have <coughs> the caring for the sanghas. Um, yeah. You know, like Santa Cruz and Nancy Gill, the person who ran it, of course, in charge of it. You know, she's gone, we have somebody else who's taken over. But if somebody's at home about and wants to practice, they can call Linda Nair. She's on the forum now. And uh, some of the members will come and help uh, with, you know, just home stuff. We don't do any medicines or anything like that. But we can help take care of the house or sit and meditate with them. Um, it's a wonderful service that this uh, center provides. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's not just for health issues. I mean, I contacted them for emotional issues. I thought that's the moment. Connected to here. These are people who wouldn't, you know, who want to have, you know, people started sending me emails and want to meet up with people and stuff like that. It's great. We've done some things as the chapel. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. We have that in Boone Crescent also. Oh, with the mention of the planning of events and so forth it comes to mind that every day we have a every year we have a day that's our death day we have our birthday but we don't know which day (laughs) is the is the death day but it's passed every year so far Maybe we should do it like the Buddha. Yeah, you know, yeah. We should just have death, it all life, life, and mm-hmm. birth at the same time. <laughs> Very efficient. Yeah. I like the cat, the Schroeder's cat. Schroeder's cat. What was that? It says math math. Like the cat is in the box and the dead at the same time. That's kind of the way we know. I also wanted to personally thank you guys. Um, We talked about this since last fall, and here it is happening. And so part of my reason for being here is I'm so interested in this and supporting this happening and supporting Val and Kim offering this on a, I would hope, on a regular basis that would be my vision you know I mean certainly annually but maybe more than annually and because it's so important and I encourage people to tell other people you know that it was a good experience and suggest that they might attend the next time and then the other thing I want to say it is there's so many levels and layers to this and um, one is you know lessening our own suffering, lessening the suffering of people who are helping us and making things clear and all that kind of thing, facing our own death. And, and, and Leela, I think you alluded to this. It's also, you know, this is facing our impermanence is the portal to awakening and to, to, to really understand that is... Is important in this whole process of our practice. So, thank you, Gary. The great renunciation. So, maybe we'll sit for a few minutes to settle down and then we'll dedicate the narrative again. So, may the merit of our practice today and our engagement with this profound topic be for our benefit and the peace of our own heart and for the benefit and the peace of the hearts of those close to us and our family, our friends, our sangha, spreading outward to bring benefit and peace to the hearts of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. And may all beings everywhere be free.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.